welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 92, recorded on February 10th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. I assume you are reporting live on the scene this week from the brand new Raspberry Pi IRL store. Yeah, it should be really, shouldn't I? Because it's only about an hour's drive from my place, but no, I'm afraid I haven't visited this yet. It's in Cambridge, right in the center of town. And yeah, it's an actual bricks and mortar shop where they sell Raspberry Pis and books and accessories and everything Raspberry Pi, including the Babbage, their little mascot thing, the little cuddly toy. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Yeah, I got to say, if there was one about an hour from me, I would probably visit. I like the idea of going in there and plugging a Raspberry Pi into a few accessories, building something, and then buying a kit, taking it home, and building the same thing at home. That is a neat idea. I do got to kind of say, though, it it reminds me of the Apple Store. They've got the Raspberry Pi logo out front, lit up like the Apple logo, and then it's sort of a white with wood tables kind of look going. Um, But at the same time, I would totally visit one if they had one nearby. Yeah, if parking wasn't such a nightmare in the town centre, then I would have probably gone up there by now. Yeah. And maybe I will at some point. But um, you do have to wonder why they've done this, though. Because either they are expecting to make a lot of money selling this stuff, or they're willing to put a lot of money into it because retail spaces in this country, well, they always talk about the high street is dying, for example. It's very, very expensive to run a retail space in this country and it has to be making a lot of money. Otherwise, you don't do it. But then again, they have got a lot of money to spend on this maybe. I don't know. I just don't really understand exactly the motivation for doing it. Any way you look at it from like logistics or money spent, hiring, this is a massive investment. So there must be several really good reasons behind it. Not just one, but I would bet several. Reading their posts and kind of reading between the lines, they say things in here that, that I think kind of frame it up for us. Like here's an example. This is a quote from the raspberrypi.org post, which we'll have linked in the show notes. They write, explore some of the things you can do with a pie. Discover our accessories and books and get your hands on store-only exclusives. Discover what you can do with a Raspberry Pi. That, I think, is a, a key sentence right there. Come explore some of these different opportunities. And I think what they're trying to say is average people, you know, a mom that walks in with her son or a dad that walks in with his daughter can, can connect things up and build something and learn about something that if they weren't following tech circles online, they would otherwise be unaware of. I think that's the plan here, and they must see this as a big opportunity to make an investment like this. It feels like you'd need to have a lot of these shops everywhere for it to be a huge success, but I suppose they have to start from somewhere, and maybe they will gauge the success of this one, and if it does turn a profit for them, then maybe they will expand into other cities around the UK, and maybe they'll end up with this even bigger empire than they've already got. I'd love to see more of these stores. At the same time, I don't want to see the foundation's focus drift too far from the core mission. I'll give you a a clear line for me. If they could launch three more stores, maybe one could even be like in the Seattle area or something like that, but it meant no Raspberry Pi 4 until 2021, I would definitely opt for the new Raspberry Pi 4. I would rather have that sooner and have the foundation's focus there 
than on opening retail stores. That said, perhaps they can chew gum and walk at the same time, and I hope so because I'd love to see a few more of these. The idea would be way more powerful if they had a bigger presence. Well, one thing they're not going to have to worry about is cashing up at the end of the day because they're not going to take any cash. It's card only. Very modern. And I don't know how I feel about that, really. It makes me feel like an old man. You only pay cash for stuff? Well, I'm not quite as bad a storeman, but I carry a bit of cash with me in, just in case things go wrong. I remember there was a big outage maybe last year and I was at the supermarket and no one could pay for anything. And the cash machine, the ATM outside was empty. Obviously, that happened within a, an hour or so. And everyone else was just not able to buy their stuff. But because I had a little bit of cash, I was able to buy the essentials and not rely on my card. So it's just a bit of a weird future for me where you know, we moved to this cashless society. I mean, I do use my card most of the time, but it's just handy to have a little bit of cash there, I find. Joe, can I tell you about the good word around Bitcoin <laughs> and just take a moment to tell you about the power of the blockchain? No, I kid. I do actually follow. In fact, I would be a little sad if we went to an all electronic payments for everything society. That said, I also prefer to pay with my phone because I always forget my wallet, but I never forget my phone. And so just the, the pragmatist in me, finds it appealing. I just wish we could have a like a, a perfect world where it was a totally open source stack, like something that was maybe blockchain based. Um, but uh, that's not 2019. That's not happening now. And I think the Raspberry Pi folks are pretty clever in this because you save on a bunch of security issues, holding cash on site. And for the things people are buying, that crowd probably has a form of electronic payment, be it a debit card, a credit card, or, or even phone. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the overhead, I mean, it costs money to pay cash into the bank. You've got to count it, and it's easy for staff to steal it and stuff. If it's all just contactless payments and card payments, it's just much easier. So I totally understand why they do it, but I don't know. It does, it just makes me feel old, man. What can I say? Well, you might feel old, so let's talk about old school stuff for a moment. Open Office. I don't think we've ever mentioned it on the show before, but this week, LibreOffice and Open Office are vulnerable to the same bug. Only one of them has been patched, and spoiler alert, it's not open office. Yeah, the fix came in very quickly for LibreOffice, so that has filtered down to the distros now, so there's very little chance that you're going to be vulnerable. And to be fair, the open office bug isn't quite as exploitable and potentially not as serious, but it does go to show that you should not be using open office. Now, I wouldn't imagine anybody listening to this is still using it, but I do often come across people who are still using OpenOffice because that was such a big brand. It was considered the free, as in beer, alternative to Microsoft Office for so long, and it's still around. You can still go and download and install it on Windows or Mac OS or whatever. And so a lot of people are still using it, and it's not being properly maintained. So I don't know what we do to get everyone to realize that they should move over to LibreOffice because that OpenOffice brand is so strong. This is why I have always stuck with Star Office. <laughs> no, I joke, but I, I do follow what you're saying, and I think there's no helping these people. These are the same people that are on Internet Explorer 6 and, and whatnot. I don't mean to be disparaging if you're one of them listening to the show. Maybe, maybe your corporate environment or educational environment mandates open office. Um, if it is, email me. And I will advocate on your behalf. Let me know, Chris at JupiterBroadcasting.com. <laughs> but the reason why this has some momentum behind it is the Australian researcher that reported the vulnerability on Friday 
also included some proof of concept exploit code in his overall report. And the chief vulnerability exploited is a path traversal flaw that allowed the attack code to move out of its current directory and then jump into the one that contained sample Python scripts for LibreOffice or OpenOffice, depending on what you were using. And once in there, they could use another vulnerability to take over the machine. And essentially, the user had very minimal interaction to trigger this, which is really the concern. Now, like Joe said, LibreOffice developers were all over it. They fixed this in version 6.142 and 6.07. And of course, in version 6.2, which has just come out as a feature release. With that major new headline, the brand new notebook bar, which is a new, as they say, radical approach to the user interface. And it provides different options for how you might like the toolbar laid out from the traditional standards kind of style to a sort of a tabbed browser look to something that is somewhat familiar to the Microsoft ribbon, which uh, they call grouped. I actually like that one the most, trying them all out myself. Uh, and it's actually, it's, it, I got, it's not bad, Joe. I, I hate to be the one here to get a little, little hype on the LibreOffice because usually I'm the one that downplays the LibreOffice stories traditionally because it's kind of boring. It's great software, but it's kind of boring. But I, having used it for the weekend, I might just do all of my writing now in LibreOffice Writer. It's pretty good. Well, I installed it on Ubuntu by just downloading the tar file with all of the debs and just doing the dpackage install um, star.deb. And I was quite surprised that it just worked perfectly. And when I opened it, I thought, well, hang on. Isn't there supposed to be something different about this? Yeah. And then I actually went and read yeah. the post and, <laughs> oh, you have to enable it, which I think is a good move at this stage. Don't just shock people with a new UI. Make it trivial for them to turn it on and off. But if you don't want this, then it's not going to be a problem for you, at least for now, because nothing has changed by default. I agree. Having these new toolbars off by default, I think it was a pretty good move because they don't feel 100% baked to me. None of them have really clicked. They all have kind of like small little issues. Everything but the standard toolbar has essentially a hamburger menu, but they don't call it that, and they don't use the hamburger menu icon. It's just like a little down arrow, or in some cases it says menu. And in different layouts, there's different stuff in that menu, and there's different areas you go to even change the layout depending on which layout you use. Like, there's just stuff in there that's, it's not 100% done, but it's like 90, 95% done. And so I think leaving it off by default, but letting people opt into it, try it out and give feedback, and then another release cycle or two, then they could pick one and, and stick to it. But this is all about making the transition from proprietary Office suites easier. Now, I must admit, I haven't used Microsoft Office for years. I've used Google Docs extensively, and I've used LibreOffice. So I'm not really in a great position to compare. Have you used Microsoft Office enough to know whether this will aid the transition? Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially for those that are coming from the standard desktop versions of Microsoft Office and don't want to necessarily make a leap to a subscription cloud version or are just tired of paying the upgrade license cycle. And one of the important things about this release is they have greatly improved interoperability with proprietary file formats once again. I mean, they do this every release, but just like all those previous releases, they've done a lot more work again. And one of the things I think is great about LibreOffice is they've specifically put work into supporting old Microsoft formats that Microsoft is no longer supporting, 
which if you think about it long term, that's the real strength of an open source project like this. They can just for years work on improving that compatibility after Microsoft leaves those users way behind. Yeah, which is a very serious problem. A few years ago, I dug out an old computer that my dad had done some writing on, and that had a SCSI hard drive in it. That tells you how old that was. And managed to hook it up. And I, I can't remember exactly how I managed to read the Claris Works docs that were on there. But I managed to convert them, and I've got them, I think, in ODT now. And that is a prime example of data that is just locked up in this proprietary format that you otherwise can't access. And yeah, as you say, the beauty of an open source project is that they can devote resources to this and potentially keep that data alive and valuable for a lot longer than a company like Microsoft would. This release gave me an opportunity to look at LibreOffice in a new light. When you combine their new look that they have and the fact that I run so many stinking Electron apps now that my bar has just shifted. Like LibreOffice is like a lightweight, efficient app with tons of features compared to my Electron apps. And when I, the, in the past, when I used LibreOffice, it was like this huge application that took all of this memory. And that all now has completely shifted when I look at how much RAM these Electron editors take. And so I'm sitting here using a native Linux application with a great spell checker, incredible file format compatibility, a great editor, and a, and a new modern look on the UI. And I'm just left a little disappointed and a little frustrated that the project isn't treating Linux users better. And I appreciate that they probably have exponentially more users on Windows and a lot more users on Mac OS. But throw us a bone. There's so many ways you could do a better job at packaging for Linux that it's it's ridiculous you're not stepping up at least in, in one avenue. Now, the folks over at Flathub have you covered. You can get the brand new latest version of LibreOffice 6.2.03, that they have, the FlatHub maintainers, have packaged up on behalf of LibreOffice, or you can go get a Snap that the Snap maintainers, the Snapcraft folks, are packaging up on behalf of LibreOffice. But if you want to install it on your own Linux box, like Joe mentioned, you got to download a tar file that extracts out into several directories with some archaic install script or a directory full of RPMs or DEBs, depending on which distribution you choose. And, and good luck. Good luck. You know what? Have at it. Because for some of us, it works just fine. And for others, it breaks like hell. You end up having multiple icons on your system. I had I installed this on an Ubuntu system and a Fedora system, and I got different results both times. And I, I can't help but think they could do a much better job. They could make an app image. They could maintain a flat pack themselves. And they have flat pack documentation on their website, and it's embarrassingly out of date. It's, it, it's, there's no excuse for it. I appreciate that they have more Windows users, but the reality is they may have one of the most competitive editors on Linux right now. Man, if they put Markdown support into this thing, it'd be next level. In fact, if anybody in the audience knows how to get Markdown support in LibreOffice, at Chris Elias, me on Twitter, I'd love to know. I mean, really, it's close there because comparing it to all of the other heavy editors now, it's got a lot of competitive options, especially when you add the new file compatibility stuff. I would just love to see them be a little more competitive on how it gets distributed. And a big tip of the hat and thank you to the FlatHub maintainers and to the staff at Canonical that are packaging up and snapping flat packs for those of us that want to try this on our system without breaking it by installing 15 different RPMs. 
The snap's still on the 6.1 branch at the moment, but I would imagine that that will get updated this week. Well, that's the problem when somebody has to volunteer their time to package it. If LibreOffice was snapping it up directly themselves, uh, then then we wouldn't have this problem. And I, I like that's why I say thank you to the folks at Canonical. They're doing it because we wouldn't have it otherwise. Yeah, although a lot of people won't actually use 6.2 for quite a while until it turns up in their distro's repos. Right. I I won't be using it day to day because I don't really need those features right now. And maybe when I upgrade to 20 or 4, it'll be in there. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's more relevant on the Windows side, really. Right. I agree. I mean, most users will just get it when their distribution refreshes. However, if you took a lifelong Mac user or Windows user and told them that they weren't going to get the next version of their Office suite until they upgraded their operating system, they would laugh in your face. Yeah. So while I agree it works, and from a practical standpoint, it's perfectly functional, but it really feels out of date. In a modern marketplace, it, it just seems super antiquated. Well, it's almost as antiquated as the Android security situation. <laughs> Everything's fine unless you view a PNG. I mean, what's the big <laughs> deal? You just innocently view a PNG on your device and you get owned. Why, why, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because almost no one is actually going to get a patch for this. Well, maybe that's harsh, but a lot of devices out there will never be patched against this vulnerability. The way you'll know you're secure is if it says you have the February 2019 patches. If you don't have that, then you kind of have a problem because the most serious of what are several vulnerabilities that got patched is this PNG vulnerability where you're just viewing a PNG image, like in an email, on a web page, in a chat app, whatever it is, you can actually have malicious code smuggled in that PNG image and the viewer on Android, if it's using the system viewer, will render it. So not all applications, but many of them. A few other holes in there, one of them involving Bluetooth signal handling, <laughs> where even just a, a malicious Bluetooth signal can can own your rig. But I think out of everything in this list, that PNG one is definitely the worst. The ping file, I guess you, some people call it a ping file, Joe. I have never called it that. I've heard it called that, but no, it's a PNG. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I was all set to be smug about this with Lineage running on my phone, and I've been doing the, the daily updates. I normally do them every week or so, but I've been doing them every day to try and get up to the February patch level, and no, I did it today, and still 5th of January 2019, so I am still vulnerable. So even Lineage on OnePlus 3T is vulnerable. Yeah, but as we record, we're only 10 days into the month, so I'm sure pretty soon you'll have it, Joe. (laughs) And, you know, it's not all doom and gloom because there's ASLR built into Android, which will throw out a lot of exploits like this. So there is mitigation technologies, and I I don't see any reports in the wild yet, so there is time for the patches to land. Yeah, but it does potentially impact at least half of all Android devices that are still active, and maybe even more than that, because it may go far back beyond Android 7. It could go several versions beyond that. We just don't know. There's not much information about this, specifically from Google at the moment, which is a bit of a shame, really. It'd be nice to have some clarity on exactly what is vulnerable. But I suppose it pretty much goes without saying that if you've got an old version of Android that isn't being patched, then you're going to be vulnerable to a lot more than just this. Uh, yeah, that, that, that is so often sort of the ending note for a story like this. And it really drives me crazy. I feel like this is a much, much bigger problem than it gets recognition for. So anybody on Android 5, for example, which is still a very, very popular version of Android, you're not getting a patch. 
And if you have a Qualcomm chip in your Android device, there's 19 security screw-ups in this February patch alone that fix driver issues for Qualcomm chipsets. If you're not getting these patches and you have a Qualcomm chip, you're vulnerable. And that's just the hard math of it. And it drives me crazy that this still is allowed to exist, that they have this slow solution Project Treble and, and and encouraging the Linux community to have much longer support windows for the kernels. And it's a very, very, very slow burn. And when you look at how long it takes this stuff to roll out to Android, it makes this next story sort of anticlimactic because what we're about to talk about won't even land until Linux 5.0. And who knows how long that'll take to get out to Android handsets. Yeah, this is Adiantum, which is encryption for low-end Android Go devices as essentially an alternative to spec, which we talked about towards the end of last year, which was the one that originally came from the NSA and didn't hang around in the kernel for very long. Right. Spec was pulled from the Linux kernel in 4.20 just simply because nobody wanted to step up to maintain it. <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't make it very long. Um, so I, I think this is actually, in a sense, not like the true meaning of the word, but in a sense, it's more competing with AES. Android offers storage encryption using advanced encryption standard, which is AES. Most new Android devices have hardware support for AES via the ARM version 8 cryptography extension, which means accelerated hardware decryption for AES. That's most Android devices, but not all. Like the Android Go devices, which are in developing countries, and Android Wear devices, and all the other kind of random devices that Android happens to run on that still need data protection, but don't have hardware-accelerated AES decryption. Now, my first thought was, hmm, what about performance? Because with my Nexus 9, I had to disable encryption because it was just useless with encryption enabled. And so that was my biggest concern, but it looks like this will be fairly efficient but there will still be a bit of a performance hit, which does matter on these low-end devices. The performance thing they're pulling off here is particularly neat, and it has to do with block sizes and how they're doing the encryption and how they stream that to the decryption system and all of that, which we all have linked in the show notes. But a couple of things to note about this. Number one, one of the core goals behind the project was to find a way to encrypt file system data on low-end devices and then be able to decrypt it very quickly without annoying the end user or, very importantly, negatively impacting the battery. So that was their benchmark. But the other thing to note is this isn't limited just to Android. It's going to be mainlined in 5.0. So it will be available via DMCrypt, and it'll be on Linux systems. It'll be an option for Linux users to secure their file system. Yeah, so it sounds good in theory, but I think I would have to see it in action and almost compare side by side to see whether or not there is that performance and battery, as you say, impact. Hopefully they've got it sussed. I agree. Whenever you're messing with your data, you have to be very careful. Not only do you need to have backups, but you need to do your own measures. Measure twice, cut once on this kind of stuff. But it is worth noting that it's not a new encryption algorithm as such. Instead, it's a repackaging of the cha-cha stream cipher that makes it useful for disk encryption. So we're dealing with repackaging existing technologies here. And this whole system was in development before SPEC was even proposed as a faster-to-deploy solution. So it's been in the works for longer than it may seem. 
Naturally, though, development did hit a, a, a faster pace when uh, spec didn't really work out. <laughs> the developers realized where that was going, like, this is our chance. But they've been working on this for a long time, and it's it's not a new fundamental encryption system they're using here. It's just a repackaging of existing safe encryption standards. Yeah, well, the first rule of crypto is don't roll your own crypto. Telegram. (laughs) Yeah, use existing technologies, ideally open source ones. So that gets a thumbs up straight away. Our last story for the day brings a big smile to my face because longtime Linux users know that whenever a new advanced fancy pants video codec was in the works, there's a few things about it that were immediately turnoffs for Linux users. It usually incorporated some kind of crazy DRM. It was patented like crazy, and it wasn't available to Linux users. And us Linux users would just sit back and go, yeah, yeah, have your crazy great video codecs. That, Joe, is no longer true. In fact, things have really shifted in video codecs and audio codecs over the years. For those of you that don't know, like a lot of the patents and encumberments around MP3 have finally, finally faded away. But we still have all these issues around H.264, the most common video codec on the web. But Intel is hoping to encourage the adoption of a future codec that is royalty-free. Yeah, AO Media Video 1, or AV1 for short, which has been gaining quite a lot of momentum recently. And there's a great talk on YouTube from linuxconf.au, which we can link in the show notes, from Timothy B. Terribury, I think you say his name, explaining just why AV1 is a great codec, apart from being royalty-free, but even technically, it's just a next-generation codec. It's a very in-depth talk, but it's well worth watching. But one of the problems that they had up until recently is that although decoding was very quick, the actual encoding of the video in the first place was fairly slow. And what Intel have done now is released as open source SVT AV1, which is their CPU-based encoding software tool. Let's make sure we understand when we're talking about hardware here, we're talking about hardware here. You're going to need a Skylight Generation or newer Xeon processor with at least 112 threads that has at least 48 gigabytes of RAM if you want to do 10-bit color space 4K video encoding. Requirements go down from there. But when you hear about how Linux is used in video production, imagine yourself a room full of rack mount Linux boxes with tons of CPUs in them and RAM that are encoding videos like this for Hollywood studio machines. This is where Linux excels in video production is when you need a ton of horsepower and you need to send your video job into something to really chew through it, you just can't beat the economics of Linux. But even as a publisher on a much smaller scale than that, it is nice to know that there's this royalty-free codec that can be baked into open-source software. And although it's early days at the moment, it'd be nice to see a lot of sites supporting this and just pushing it forward. And I think that Intel's move here might make that a reality sooner rather than later. Well, the support is looking really good on the playback side. Chrome, Firefox, all those current versions have support. MPV, VLC, they have support. FFmpeg nightlies have support, so it's going to be coming to handbrake very soon. But this is all kind of CPU-based now. But about a year from now, Intel says we're going to be seeing actual hardware encoders that can churn out video in the AV1 codec much, much faster. So this isn't a long-term solution. This is like for people that want to deal with high-resolution video right now and distribute it at incredibly small file sizes. This is something you can do. But in about a year... 
it could be baked into chips for a lot of us. Yeah, and anything that gets us away from patents and royalties and all of that horrible mess has got to be good. So I'm really hoping that this works out as a new industry standard. Yeah, really. H.264 has been great. And X264, technically amazing. Black Magic, having worked in video for many years, I am so impressed. I'm also ready to move on. AV1 looks even better. It's royalty-free. It's just going to be a process. Early support is there, but we just have to wait and see where this goes. And if something interesting develops with this or any story in Linux or the open source world, we'll cover it. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And if you're well networked in the open source world, Linux Academy is hiring an instructor recruiter to help us grow the training architect team here from around 30 people to 100 people. Our students have high expectations and they want to add a ton of more content and need to hire a lot more people. But we need somebody that can put us in touch with great people. If that's you linuxacademy.com slash careers. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next week. See you later.